Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder, you know, a founder that, uh, you know, definitely has uh, has been able to really, you know, build, scale, finance, I mean, you name it. And and, and also, I mean, he's done it multiple times. Uh, and also he has been able to experience the corporate world and really making the, the leap of faith. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Abby Friedman. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I've been a, a fan of the show, and it's uh, an honor to be asked to be on. Well, likewise, definitely an honor to have you here. So, so I guess let's start with the early beginnings, like a walk through memory lane. So, born and raised in Philly, and raised in the suburbs. So, how was life growing up there? Life was very 1980s Radio Shack. Um, I haven't seen the uh, I haven't seen the show The Goldbergs, but we grew up one town over. Uh, my parents were a doctor and a lawyer, um, so we were middle, middle class, and I was very privileged and fortunate to have a good education, and um, uh, I grew up around people that were wealthier and some that were less, but um, also had some business and tech in the family um, that uh, um, I got involved with that, that really helped me out later in life. And obviously, in 1978, you received a book that changed everything. <laughs> yeah, it was a book called Instant Basic. We had a, uh, a Seder, um, so it's a family gathering around uh, the Passover holiday. My uncle, who had gone to MIT um, and was a cardiologist doing research, gave me a book on basic. And my father said, oh, I have computers at the hospital. He was a pulmonologist doing research on lung obstruction. And uh, so I went upstairs and wrote a program. And my uncle read the book, wrote a program. My uncle said, no, that wouldn't, here's the changes. And then I wound up starting, you know, going down to the hospital, hacking all night um, uh, in my, uh, when I was eight and nine. And uh, my father had a wizard who had been at, uh, in the Unix world. So got, was very fortunate to get into that um, uh, pretty early. That's amazing. And obviously that really gave you access or exposure, or even you were envisioning like how to create, you know, and, and build things in a scalable way. And and I guess your grandparents at the time were running a manufacturing company and then, you know, you kind of like got involved and, and applied some of those uh, knowledge. So, uh, so tell us about this. Yeah. My uncle um, had, uh, had started off, this was in the CPM days, which is an old operating system um, uh, with an interest in trying to help them automate their business 
from uh, index card uh, to track the customers. And then um, once that was bootstrapped, um, I took that over and developed that out into a full-fledged really business control system for them. And then um, worked in the business, um, got to see their attitude towards uh, customers and also went around. My grandfather was in Rotary and we did some hustle and I went to the other businesses and basically adapted that system to them. So I did database consulting um, back in the 80s, built computers for people back when you could go to computer shows and buy the parts and put them together and, um, you know, had a mix of things that gave me my, uh, my money for, uh, for toys. Um, and I always wanted to build a multi-line bulletin board system at the time, but um, didn't quite have permission from my parents to, you know, put a wiring closet in the basement with 20 lines and modems and all that. Um, uh, but uh, had fun as a teenager and, you know, into college uh, doing various things. So then you went to Temple uh, mm -hmm. for college and obviously you were already having your, your own gig, you know, that really transformed into becoming you know, a lab that you had with all those resources and that actually led you to start your first project. Yeah. So when I went to Temple University, I, I had already started using Unix machines and buying and selling some workstations. And they had these VMS machines that I really didn't like the operating system of. It was like the evil administrative empire operating system. But I got permission to bring in my own machines and I was interested in parallel processing and distributed systems. Um, so I set up bigboy.cis.temple.edu. So it was a public access Unix machine, ran multi-user dungeon games, learned a lot. And, uh, you know, ultimately, by the time I was ready to leave uh, college, um, there was no way to buy dial-up Internet access. So I, I had become addicted to, you know, the T1 that I had access to directly from all my machines and said, well, how do I do this? And I had wanted to run a multi-line bulletin board system. So I actually wrote some software that looked like a bulletin board system, but was actually Unix underneath, um, connected to the internet and thought, well, how hard could this be? I'll just, you know, I'll just set something up, uh, one of these public access Unix machines and my apartment add some phone lines. So it was 215-664-UNIX and um, uh, discovered that um, I had found something that it was impossible to fail at. Um, so it was very fortunate timing. Uh, it was the first ISP in Philadelphia uh, and there was just a ton of pent up demand at the time. A nice outcome, too, for being your, your first little project, correct? Yes. I mean, it was humbling um, because I tried very hard to fail. Um, I really wanted to pay attention to the technology side, but, you know, ultimately people needed to be paid and we need to buy modems and all that. But no, it was very fortunate. It was the right time with a good idea. And I had um, been fortunate enough to have uh, had a lot of the, the ability to learn uh, before the internet really hit, what it was about and the foundational technologies. So then you go to AboveNet, uh, and basically this is the time where you really have exposure to really understanding the ineffectiveness of micromanagement. Tell us. About <laughs> yeah, so so uh, I was recruited to uh, go to AboveNet um, and run engineering there, and uh, I joined before they become public. That actually drove me to. Uh, sort of merge my ISP um, and then get that on a different uh, track before it was sold. And, um, you know, it was it was great. We were the third largest uh, web hosting company. We, did, we ran an international backbone. But yeah, it was very interesting to see because I was working for one of the founders who was a technologist. And, you know, it can be very frustrating as a founder because you can often feel 
that no one can do anything as well as you can. And I've, I've seen that from both sides. You know, at one point I said to my mother who worked for a large law, multiple large law firms, tried her own thing and then went back to working for large law firms. I, I said, am I a bad person? Cause I feel this way. And she said, well, I mean, all you think about is this thing and you have all the, you know, the equity and most people have lives and, and, and no, it's not surprising that in a lot of different areas, you have opinions about what's best and can actually do a little bit of everything, but to scale, you actually need to let go. And while there was, I had great fun at AboveNet, there were also times when, um, for various technical religious reasons, decisions that really didn't matter, um, you know, would get overridden. And it really hurt my ability to run the group and decrease my job satisfaction. And, um, you know, that's a struggle that I've had since then, which is what's, what's the right level of delegation? How soon do you interfere? And, you know, the answer is it's got to be something pretty major. Um, uh, that's, that's what I've learned is you can't hire the great people that are going to surprise you with great ideas and really run things. if You're constantly micromanaging, but especially in a venture back company, you can't wait for quarters if your gut is telling you something is wrong. So finding that balance is one of the great challenges of, of, of running a company. You know, there's a saying that goes that whatever you resist persists. And I guess, yeah. you know, you definitely, you definitely resisted because after, after above you go to Akamai and in Akamai, you know, here you still have issues, you know, with, with thousands of employees, things not going as fast, perhaps not scaling the way that you want them. Like, and you were even there for 10 years, you know, all the way until you finally, you know, like it got you to, to your, to your business today. So, so I guess, what did you learn there? Because also, you know, like you were fortunate enough that they let you do a side project, which turned out to be, you know, again, a nice outcome. Yeah. So Akamai was next to Kentic, the most amazing business experience that I had. Um, you know, I was much more aware of what I was doing when I joined Akamai right before they their IPO, then when I started NetAccess, which was really just a, 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 a hobby and I wasn't sure what was gonna happen with it. Um, and the first couple years, especially working with Danny Lewin, who was the CTO and founder, he was such an amazing man who, technologist, but also in strategy and managing and leading and motivating. Um, and Akamai was also, I mean, raising, it was the bubble. We were raising hundreds of millions at a time. Um, still got very fortunate. We almost went out of business when basically half our customers ceased to exist. They didn't just stop paying the bills. They ceased to exist. And Danny led pivoting the company uh, pretty fundamentally. But after that you know, really intense earlier period, you become a company that needs to scale. And I was not a founder at Akamai. Um, I had really strong conviction around um, going into what's now called cloud. Ironically enough, we were calling it native edge computing because we had a Java-based edge computing and edge computing is a thing. But, you know, it wasn't clear the market was ready and uh, that looked a little bit infrastructure-like for where Akamai was going. At the same time, uh, you know, I was a big fan of the technology and the company and friends, but, uh, and had many friends there. But um, I did wind up staying 10 years but I did try to leave a couple times. And uh, one of the times that I tried to leave, I said, look, I'm going crazy not being able to put my hands on technology other than my, you know, one machine that I host. And so I got permission to start um, a side project called Read News. Um, Read News started out trying to be more consumer, making Usenet usable, which was one of the 
first distributed um, and decentralized applications um, of, of the internet. Um, and then wound up turning into a wholesale business that I ran, you know, part-time and eventually added a couple employees to. And yeah, that was, I got permission to do that while I was at Akamai, but it wasn't competitive and it kept me sane because I couldn't work on the products that I really wanted to create there. Um, but, you know, I gave enough value that they didn't want me to leave. So. And obviously that sold in the single digit million. So quite a nice bonus too, while you're getting your nine to five paycheck. So way to go, Abby. So, uh, so what I... Well, what I want to ask you now is, obviously, after, you know, this, this journey, then you become the CTO of Server Central, where you were doing, you know, stuff around cloud infrastructure. But then, you know, like, really, this is your segue into starting Kentic, mm -hmm. which is like your, your real, you know, baby, like, meaningful business that you've done, you know, uh, to date. So, so tell us, how did this happen? How did you bring it, you know, to life? Uh, and also about that rejection from Y Combinator. <laughs> sure. So um, I had done a lot of federal work at Akamai, and that wound up introducing me to a lot of people in the more broad security space. And after I left Akamai, just, you know, for various, there are various dynamics going on. Um, and I had a partner that I had done some cloud work with, and we got approached by various people that were looking for high-speed network sensors, like hardware, not SaaS. And I built a next-gen version of that, and we sold it, and everyone that bought it said, what do we do with all this data? Now, I've always been interested in the internet and scaling and operations and, 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 and the cloud ways, and I thought that was a much more interesting um, approach because other than selling sensors, everything I've ever done has been recurring revenue. And... Um, so I had a Usenet company that could be a mock customer, and I had resources running from that, and I mocked it up and showed it to people, and they said, not only did they say, if you build it, I'll buy it, but they said, how much do you want to charge for it? Which I think is a really good signal for early product market fit. People were saying, we have this problem, we want to pay for it. And then it was really just a question of, you know, how do we want to go about making that business? Um, and I thought about bootstrapping it, uh, because I had the the Usenet company that had infrastructure that we could do that in. Um, I thought about, uh, you know, going the more venture back route, um, was starting to read about it, about, you know, incubators. And I had a friend that became a co-founder um, who uh, was a big fan of Y Combinator and, and, and Hacker News. And, uh, you know, I had not, I had worked for two companies that were venture backed, but I joined right before their IPOs, which is, you know, every year in a startup, you'd have an infinite number of things that you could look back on that, you know, you did. And so when you join right pre-IPO, it's very different than, you know, from the idea stage. Um, yeah, and we applied to Y Combinator. Um, I thought it was a good ROI because, you know, if we get 7% more valuation, then the dilution is in essence paid for. And, you know, what do I know about starting a venture back startup that was different than the other things that I had done? And we didn't even get an interview. It wasn't that we were rejected. But we had four co-founders, three of them hadn't left their day jobs to only focus on it. And the idea we applied for was more around data storage and not the actual uh, transforming how, how the internet runs, which is what Kentic does. Um, so, you know, what they tell you to do if you don't get into Y Combinator is just do what you're going to do. So that's what we did. Amazing. So then what ended up being the business model so that the people listening get it? 
Sure. So Kentic is a SaaS company that uh, ingests real-time telemetry from all the networks in the world and helps people who run the infrastructure, both the service providers and cloud companies and the people that, that build the apps that drive the revenue for their companies to run all that infrastructure. So your networks, your internet networks, your cloud, your SD-WAN, you know, all the way up into your servers and things that are going on. So we sell to infrastructure people um, and our customers are Box and Dropbox and uh, Yelp and um, Zoom and then infrastructure companies um, like IBM and DigitalOcean and Linode and service providers and, and folks like that. And I know as well that you raised a capital early on. I mean, how, how much capital have you guys raised today? Uh, we've raised 52 million of equity. And we, as part of a last round, raised about $10 million of long-term debt um, as so, well. And in your case, why did you decide to go via the venture capital route? I mean, obviously you took the 3 million seat early on, but, but why did you think that venture capital was the way to go? Especially because on your last two projects, you just bootstrapped them yourself. Yeah, so in hindsight, I know you like to ask this question last, but in hindsight, um, I think there are some hidden advantages uh, to bootstrapping that I didn't even realize at the time. But one of the key things that I didn't want to do was just go get started and not have a reporting cadence. And so, um, one, I didn't realize that I could have filled out the th the th we did a $3 million seed round. It turns out we could have filled that out with people from the industry that were a fan of what we were going to do. At the time, I didn't know that. I wasn't comfortable asking my friends that I see multiple times a year for money because it's I felt it was riskier than they might realize. And um, I knew that if I raised price venture capital round, we'd have a reporting cadence. We'd have I'd have people that I respected that I wouldn't want to look foolish in front of and it, I wouldn't get distracted with the technology because I'd be committed to trying to grow. You know, they have uh, venture capitalists have defined fund lifetimes and, you know, you need to build to a result. So that was part of it. Just sort of looking at myself, I wanted to have that. And I thought the market was large enough to support it. Um, so that was why we went with um, with venture backing from the beginning. There's some downsides to that that may not be obvious also. In that if you have early success, it can be too easy maybe to raise more money and, and, and pile on. Uh, but it wound up being a good choice for us. And talking about funding, I mean, obviously you guys just raised, you know, the last the last round in literally May, you know, which is uh, the last tranche, which was really <laughs> fantastic. I mean, talking about timing, right? Uh, I guess, you know, like obviously you're in San Francisco uh, and you're very close as well to, especially now that you've been in it, you know, to the fundraising, you know, arena and market. I mean, how have you seen that perhaps COVID-19, you know, has impacted the, the fundraising landscape for everyone? Yeah, it's interesting because the market, the public market, certainly, is not behaving as we might have expected. Um, and in the venture funding market, it feels like things have gotten sharper. The raises that were going to be easier are actually maybe even a little easier than they were. Because people have, you know, are trying to focus their capital and they have plenty of capital um, and raises where you can't really from companies that are having difficulty telling the story or people weren't really convinced about capital efficiency and growth. Those have gotten harder or, you know, maybe impossible right now. Um, I think a lot of people have talked about what I see as true, which is 
definitely easier if you have people that you have already had some relationship with. Our round, we met them 25 minutes for 25 minutes before we raised the round in February at one of the last investor conferences that ran. Um, but we, we, we had met in person. Um, some of my current investors, I go on walks with around San Francisco, properly socially distanced. So I think that there's, it's definitely the, the, the founders that I talk with are generally a little bit later stage. And as they're talking about raising capital, it's people they had in, in their network, but they're having no problems raising capital. Um, it was not an issue for us. I talked with two founders in the last week about what the maximum valuation they'd be willing to take was. In other words, like don't overcap, don't, the, the valuation in your round is really the hurdle you need to jump over to have an exit or raise more money. It's not actually what your company's worth at the time. And if you make it too high, that can be, um, you know, a huge issue. Um, so I would say it's a frothy market for companies that are, you know, doubling or have great SaaS efficiency and in great markets. Um, so people are still raising money uh, just a little bit differently. And talking about the impact, how would you say that COVID as well has impacted your operation as well as your people? So uh, we're still growing, but there's, I would say, I couldn't have predicted exactly who, what customers would be growing and what customers would have issues maybe in March. Um, but, you know, net, net positive, we're growing. We've had some of the more traditional enterprise that were expansion for us actually accelerate because now in a remote world, they really need to see their corporate connectivity, not just the applications and internet and cloud. Um, and we've even had our two biggest travel related companies either renewed or are talking about upgrading. But we've seen even some big tech companies say, I just can't think about anything in Q2, which we expected. Um, you know, and we're still booking business and, and upgrading. On the people side, that's really been, you know, a huge amount of management overhead. Um, in terms of not that it's a chore, but just it, we take a lot of time as the management team trying to think and be proactive in a world of uncertainty. So it's like everything that a startup is has actually gotten even more accel accelerated where you have to plan with incomplete data. Um, you know, for the first six weeks, we spent a lot of time thinking and, and trying to make sure there wouldn't be issues with work from family. It's not even work from home. It's really people are working from family. And then over the last six weeks, we've also added in how do we keep people connected who were field sales or in the field remote because we were three-fifths remote before COVID. Um, and, you know, keep them connected uh, when, you know, some of their network might have uh, disappeared. But in one way, it would be hard to see that there's anything going on with the company. We've done the transition pretty well. The other hand, we know there's a lot of stress and spend a lot of time thinking about how to make that easier. And we see that in our in our customers, too, are spending a lot of time with that. So I guess what what kind of like insights, you know, have you gotten? Because at the end of the day, you know, experience is everything. Uh, but I guess with such a a unpredictable event, you know, like COVID and, and how it has like shaken up like every business, like every market, I guess as an operator, I mean, what have you learned? The thing which was most impactful for us and not to go too much out of order with the questions that you uh, so brilliantly ask is we could have been looking at the companies that have had great success 
in the SaaS world, there's a whole trend called product-led growth, which is really trying to invest in education and onboarding. And it's something we were focusing on adding. We spent all last year reworking the product to be much more accessible to the the non-super nerds of the, of the infrastructure world. And we were starting a bunch of educational efforts. But COVID has really brought that into contrast that no one wants to be marketed to, right? Traditional enterprise, I think you have, you know, goes one, I think you have a problem. Two, we solve it. Three, would you like a demo? And then you just repeat that programmatically. And with COVID, it became pretty clear early on that that was not the successful, that was not going to be successful in a world where uh, that had just transformed. But uh, First Round Capital, which has been an awesome investor for us, led a CEO panel. And one of the CEOs said, you need to make a deposit before you ask for a withdrawal. And again, I think that's really like give people value, educate them, bring them into the product. And I think you're seeing success of companies that were set up for that because they weren't as dependent on field sales, right? They weren't as dependent on the trade shows. Um, so I think that was a motion that people were realizing was really successful um, in SaaS in terms of capital efficiency and growth. We were already investing in that and COVID has made it easier to understand and talk about. Um, at the same time, um, you know, it, it's a very stressful time for people, uh, their families, customers, and, um, you know, just trying to be supportive uh, and realize that the world has changed um is uh you know again a lot of stress uh going with it so as you said all the markets are getting shaken up in many in ways we can't predict uh our focus is how do we become the most value creating for our customers um which ultimately is what creates the most success in business over time and you were talking about having customers like dropbox and and other you know like great brands uh, my, my question now, I guess, you know, like probably the people that are listening, they're maybe like wondering, hey, you know, how big is Kentec? I mean, anything that you can tell us about maybe like number of employees or anything to give us sure. an idea? Yeah, we're 80 people. We are um, in the tens of millions of dollars of recurring revenue with great positive net retention and, you know, gross margin in the 80s because we we uh, we did a lot of work on the technical infrastructure to be able to do that. Um, and uh you know, growing and, and adding, this is years, the first one, we're really going to be adding some new products and that we'll be making some announcements about that over the next couple of months. But, um, uh, you know, there are things that uh, I wish I had done differently and things that we did pretty well. Um, and uh, starting a venture-backed startup or that's going for high growth has been more humbling than I could have predicted. Having Having, as you said, I've done a lot of different things, but signing up for constantly critiquing and trying to find, you know, the cumulative sum of 5% better that you could do um, that will get better results for your, your, your employees and your investors and customers is a, uh, is a hard, hard work. It keeps you from being bored. And where do you think that your uh, market, your space is really going as a whole? I think that there's two or three trends that even pre COVID we're really on the move around digital transformation and how infrastructure is changing. Um, and that's a really exciting opportunity for Kentic because we really are the platform that the infrastructure people use to observe, predict, understand, plan, and scale the infrastructure. 
Um, so, you know, looking forward, um, you know, we just, we'd focus on bringing up more product in an integrated way to those customers and, and really getting into additional verticals. Our first customers were, again, uh, Zoom and Yelp and, 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 and Dropbox and, 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 and folks like that. And then, you know, big international uh, infrastructure companies. And then, but the traditional enterprise are realizing they need to operate like them, but it's a different language. It's a different mindset. Um, um, and even some different technologies they use. So those traditional companies are now accelerating. Really, you can't go to the data center. You can't drop appliances in. So our competitors like Riverbed and NetScout and Corville, you know, that doesn't work. People don't want to bring appliances to the cloud. So there's just been a huge amount of acceleration that I think will be beneficial to Kentic and, you know, companies like ours, companies like Dropbox that's on the application side, uh, companies like Looker that Google bought that are on the BI side. You know, so service delivered modern approaches, um, I think, are going to be uh, have even better growth over the next few years. Very nice. And obviously, what a what a remarkable journey, Abby. You know, and I'm sure that uh, you've been able to learn, you know, quite a bit, you know, during those uh, lessons learned, during the successes, during the failures and really embrace them all. And I guess as you're looking back, Abby, and, you know, and, and let's see if I was you know, to, to propose, you know, that you had this opportunity of going back in time and, and having a chat with your younger self, with that younger Abby that was maybe thinking about launching something, you know, back in the, in the early days, you know, perhaps some years ago, what would be that conversation that you would have, Abby? And more than that, what would be that one piece of advice that you would give to yourself before launching a business? It sounds, um, well, pretty common, but in one word, it would be focus. In the late 90s inside my ISP, we started three projects, each of which later became multi hundred million to multi billion dollar businesses. But they were really side projects that got up enough to see that people liked it. And there was no real focus on targets or growth. Um, before I started Kentic, I was CTO of a company. I had Read News. I had another startup that we started and, and, and shut down. I had, you know, and I was doing the pre-work for Kentic and I had a couple friends at that time when I was already 40 say, you know, it's nice that you can do all these different things, but maybe you should just pick one. Um, and that's been a challenge for me because I look around and I say, oh, that's a problem that needs to be solved. And that's a problem that needs to be solved. And I think you either need to decide you're focusing or you need to do an idea lab. Um, one of our, our, our first investors that led our seed round, Howard Morgan, had actually been involved in Idea Lab. So if, you, if you're the kind of person that sees opportunity everywhere, either just pick one, as painful as that might be, and just make that the thing, which is the only thing you're going to do, or find some other kind of structure so you can advise and invest, uh, because it's really hard to build you know, more than one meaningful thing at a time. Wonderful. And for the folks that are listening, Abby, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Um, always happy to hear from people. I'm Avi at Kentic.com. I'm Avi Friedman on Twitter and LinkedIn. Um, and uh, even if you're just looking for advice, looking to compare notes, um, always happy to get to know people. Um, you know, building a network is one of the best things that CEOs can do because it can be uh, it can be a, a lonely place. And um, even people asking questions can teach you a ton. Amazing. Well, Abby, thank you so much for being on the Dealmakers podcast today. Alejandro, thank you for inviting me. I've been a fan and um, 
uh, taking notes myself on uh, how to create value um, uh, with uh, with helpful content uh, for the ecosystem. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.